Hello and welcome to Baker McKenzie's Big Deal series. In this episode, we're looking at how the coronavirus pandemic has affected the digital transformation of companies and what legal considerations arise when companies use M&A as part of that transformation. I'm Satwant Panda and joining me today to discuss these themes are Reshma Sahoni, co-founder and managing partner of Seedcamp, a London-based platform that supports startups from their earliest stages. Lisa Fonteno, partner and M&A specialist at Baker McKenzie's Silicon Valley team. And Michelle Blunt, partner at Baker McKenzie's intellectual property practice group and head of the IP team in London. So it goes without saying the coronavirus pandemic has thrown up a number of challenges to companies all over over the world. Michelle, can you tell us how that's affected their digital transformation in particular and how businesses can use M&A to respond positively? I think it's interesting that the COVID pandemic to me is not, it hasn't created an entirely new dynamic around digital transformation. I think it's just accelerated a lot of the thinking that companies were already doing. But we will see even more players wanting to move into buying tech startups. And that does feel quite different to um, how it might run if you're doing a traditional strategic M&A play in the industry you're already operating. And speed is one that I think can catch people out the first time they get into that market because the big West Coast tech players very much made that market and they move fast. Lisa, what else is different about the M&A deals that we're seeing over this particular period? We are seeing certain challenges just to deal execution in that we are no longer uh, meeting in rooms to negotiate transactions. I think companies and deal advisors have gotten very good about dealing with these challenges, including conducting due diligence remotely, having management presentations be done virtually, having due diligence conducted remotely, even by drones in some cases. Other considerations that are important are cultural These are often growing technology startups that have had to be very nimble in and are accustomed to working in a very lean working environment with focusing the resources on a strong R&D function of engineers and the team supporting it. The acquired company is into which the target's going to be integrated has, by definition, a broader strategy, operations, and a different management team. It can be a new reality for founders in particular who are once masters of their own universes, now moving into a possible team role within a larger organization. And that organization will have broader imperatives than the acquired targets business. That can reduce the amount of apparent operating freedom for that company and compel considerations of the team that were broader than were the case when it was a standalone business. I want to pick up on the point around the masters of the universe. We can't underscore that. It's, it is it is massive. I mean, you know, sometimes it depends, right? I think if we're, if you talk to someone like us, we are used to investing in very young founders. Um, that's probably more the case than, than some of our older founders as such. These founders have potentially never worked before in a corporate environment. What I do see, a lot of our companies actually do get acquired by the FANG, so the Facebook, Apple, Google, and and, and so forth. And what we see work really well, particularly Google, is they have an integration team. And 
you know, an onboarding team. So I think if you are a corporate corporate out there who doesn't have one, certainly a time to put one in place. Or if you do have one, the other element that we found really interesting about Google acquiring our companies is the onboarding team is actually made up of companies they've acquired before. So it, there will be a champion in, in that onboarding team who has been part of an acquisition before. So that authenticity, you know, they bring to the, the table of, of that integration, that, that onboarding. And I mean, again, that goes a long way to making the acquired company feel more at home. Oftentimes these days, that rest of the team is remote as, as well. They're not all in, all in one location. So you do need that onboarding team to really ingest, digest this you know, choir team and, and every single person on that team because they're often really vital people because most of the teams are heavy in, in engineering. So yeah, the culture element is just absolutely really, really important, critical to nail right. And Michelle, do you have something to add there? Because obviously it's actually difficult for the bigger corporates to understand perhaps the immaturity that we're, maybe we're talking about of founders of these tech startups. I think also just trying to wrap your head around how personal a decision it is for founders when they, you know, if they've got a number of different options for which corporate acquirer they might go with. And although they may never have worked in any of the fangs or the other corporates that are out there looking to buy them, there is a real founder community, particularly in Silicon Valley, but more widely. They know who the good acquirers are and who the bad ones are. Um, and they do, you know, that community has views on who looks after startups when they bring them in and who kind of crushes them in the corporate machine. And Lisa, did you have anything further to to talk about in terms of legally what organizations can be looking at? I will say that not only is talent an important asset in the acquisition, but sometimes companies are targeted um, primarily or almost exclusively for the talent. We've seen more and more frequently recently, including during the pandemic, acquirers executing acquihires of selected talent that are associated with little assets of the business. And it's important to consider what legal regimes that you're operating within in that context, because the law can mandate things like continuation of employment in the context of an asset acquisition. uh, There could be a mandatory consultation or other similar process for changes in terms of conditions of employees' employment. Michelle, can you just tell us what is the outlook for data privacy laws in general? It's fast becoming just part of business as usual. There is a lot of regulation still coming down the line in countries that haven't sort of adopted that high watermark yet. One other point I think is really interesting around the data debate is that when you're doing the due diligence on these targets around data, it's not really an on-paper exercise anymore. You really need to dig in and understand how it is that the product works, that the target is, you know, what is happening to data? How is it getting from the person that that data is about through the product and out to something that somebody's paying for? Because how that really works and what the, the flow of data is through the product often is the difference between it being compliant and not compliant. So that's quite fun for lawyers because it means we have to really roll up our sleeves and figure out how the technology works. M&A activity has bounced back in the second half of 2020, along with a lot of other things as well. Reshma, do you think we're going to see that trend continue with bigger bets on smaller players? I think Europe is 
very interesting sort of geographically in, you know, what's become a bit of a trade war, right, between U.S. and, and, and China at, at this point. And, you know, Europe is seen as a neutral place, a, a neutral playground. And so, you know, we're certainly seeing some of that acquisition interest coming from Asia as, as, as well, more and more in the, in the last few years, both from an investment and M&A perspective as, as well. So I think that will continue. Well, actually, I wanted to pick up on one of the points that Michelle made. What's interesting is the banker role, you know, we find has has diminished in these young startup acquisitions. I think it is, you know, it's much more folks like Michelle who, as as lawyers, are helping our companies because they're doing a lot of the forensics and they're they're really digging in and figuring out as as the example of sort of what's open source, what's acceptable, what's what's not. And Lisa, what's your forecast or predictions in terms of M&A activity going into 2021? We're seeing transformational M&A, big ticket acquisitions for companies to transform. But we also expect to see tech and other companies continue to do a large series of tuck-in acquisitions to basically grow their expertise and competence, add more capabilities and functions to make it a more competitive market player. And then finally, we're seeing a lot of interest, and this existed before the pandemic, but I think the pandemic has has really accelerated the adoption of smart technologies, use of AI and machine learning to optimize both the supply function, uh, planning for logistics, uh, incorporating user information to better target marketing and delivery of services and products. I will mention that there are some nationalistic tendencies that we're seeing exacerbated uh, as a result of COVID in various parts of the world, which are increasingly uh, scrutinizing transactions for foreign investment review in the U.S., but also outside of the U.S. I don't think that that actually creates a blow to M&A activity occurring, but it may have some impact on where that activity is occurring, as Reshma was suggesting. But the demand for technology and talent continues and I think has grown as a result of the current crises that we're facing. And and out of crises comes great opportunities. So we're seeing business models both get refined and uh, transform in meaningful ways, which will certainly continue to drive M&A activity into the future. Okay, well, Michelle, Lisa, Reshma, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a fascinating conversation and look forward to seeing how this plays out in 2021.